0: today we are looking at marriage and civil law. So this is of course on sexual morality, um, But one of the points we need to be clear on is that anything to do with the bedroom affects everybody, it affects society. Now one angle we're looking at that therefore today in particular is how that needs to impact on the question of government and what's appropriate legislation, what's Um, needed legislation for the flourishing of society. So, if I mapped it out this way, society, what does society need? Among the things it needs to flourish is it needs children. There are no children, there is no future. It therefore needs a suitable upbringing for those children. So various communist dictatorships of the last century um, frequently saw marriage as a place where there was an alternative upbringing to the state. Uh, would take children away from families frequently. The large-scale Soviet-era orphanages trying to replace the family did not result in happy children, happy adults. There's something about the family that is integral, necessary to the human condition. So if society needs children, needs a place for children to be raised, then it needs marriage, and it needs marriage to be about, this is one of the things we're gonna unpack on many levels in coming parts of this course, marriage to be about a man and a woman. So man and woman have a relationship that is complementary, and that serves the child. So we're not saying marriage needs to be about a man and a woman because it's in the Bible, or only that. We're saying marriage needs to be about a man and a woman because a child being raised, the normal healthy environment for that is for a child to be raised seeing both of these gender roles in the home. So with that Differentiated, differentiated role models. So we've already noted and will continue to note that those role models vary in different societies but vary within certain parameters. Again, this serves the child. The commitment of a man and a woman to each other. This serves the child. The, a child needs stability, a child needs regularity. The commitment of the parents in this thing we call marriage serves the child. But it's also important to note that commitment serves the society even if there's no children. So you know, a particular husband and wife don't have children, can't have children. Their commitment to each other is just one of these little stabilizing pockets within society that serves the whole of society. so we can sum that up saying marriage serves the common good that therefore the state the government has a duty to foster and support marriage. And we'll note in contrast that what are sometimes called counterfeit marriages, things that somehow claim to be or look like marriage in some sense, counterfeit marriages simply do not serve society. So if the government gives counterfeit marriages the same benefits that it gives to traditional marriages, it's actually undermining traditional marriages because if everybody gets the same benefit, then it's not really a benefit anymore. Um, You've ceased to promote something if you're promoting everything else at the same time. phrase it this way, supporting everyone equals supporting no one. So we'll touch on this again in, I think, our next lecture, that the church says you shouldn't discriminate unjustly against someone with a same-sex attraction, but if you're giving someone in a same-sex union the same benefits that you're giving someone in a man-wife un- uh, man-woman union, you're actually, in effect, penalizing the man-wife union. Okay, so background t- behind all of this we need to recall what a law is, that it is, an quoting St. Thomas, who's quoted in the Catechism, an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by authority, yeah, by authority and promulgated. We'll unpack those different elements through this lecture. Another thing we're going to touch on in this lecture is unjust laws. So, if our culture is increasingly moving away from a Christendom model where the laws were largely inspired and based on Christian structures like marriage that we also say are natural structures based on reason and nature. In a society moving away from that, we're going to get more and more unjust laws. Well, what, what do these mean? Well, unjust laws do not bind, we're going to note, They are in fact, the Catechism says, are acts of violence. And we're gonna note at what point is civil disobedience, civil war, and tyrannicide. the appropriate Catholic response in a situation of increasingly unjust laws. So that in brief is what we're going to be (laughs) running through this morning. So I asked you to read certain of these pages in advance. I know it's exam week. Did you all have time to do that? So that I can just skim through that with you um, rather than go through all those church document quotes. Okay, so let's start going through my notes, page one. Um, so I start by noting that traditionally every human culture has publicly recognized man-woman unions. So, you know, in societies that don't have laws or legal structures or whatever, all that varies, but there's always been public recognition of a man-wife union. It's just part of the human condition to recognize that. I say such humans are not private, they affect others. And I say, in societies with developed legal systems, this public recognition takes legal form. I say further, because good government recognises that marriages serves the common good of society, governments have typically made legal provisions assisting marriages, like tax breaks for married couples. Um, so that's just, in a sense, one specific example. How can society promote the common good, well it can do so by having government give tax breaks to married couples, knowing that marriage brings with it commitments, financial things, society reciprocally supports marriage with tax breaks. Now I note next I say our modern, or we can say our American problem with this issue. I say, before considering this in any detail, we need to consider, recall, the purpose of government and how it relates to the common good of society. I say, two factors make it difficult to view this objectively. So the first is American libertarianism, which views all government as, at best, a necessary evil. I say, in reality, however, the redcoats are coming is a rather outdated concern. But that is... A slogan, a line from history that is part of the American identity, this deep distrust of government. Lines like, all taxation is theft. Um, these aren't Catholic thoughts, but they are deeply American thoughts. So sec- second t- 20th century communism has given us many horrific examples of evil governments. Say, but government as a concept shouldn't be judged on the basis of abuses of it. So just because you can look at all these 20th century examples of bad governments and therefore think, well, government must be bad, that doesn't necessarily follow. I add 21st century fears of an LGBTQ plus agenda-driven government's opposing Catholic institutions is likewise not a basis for opposing all government. So if you look on Twitter, if you look on social media, you can just pick up this narrative of fear in right-thinking people, fear of government and what's gonna be coming next. Um, Well, if we are gonna be clear-thinking, we need to also grasp whatever fear we might have, that there is a proper role for government. So I then quote two politicians of the 20th, late 20th century. So Ronald Reagan's famous line, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, and I say these words stand as a judgment on excessive government interference in people's lives. These words do not stand as a suitable Catholic comment on all government activity. On the other side of the fence, Hillary Clinton famously had the line, it takes a village. So that was from her education policy. Um, her book, I say of that title, envisaged government support for a family to raise a child. And the kind of response, as I say there, her critics replied that her policy was really, it takes a police state rather than it takes a village. Um, this vision somehow of the government Are you saying it's supporting the family or are you saying it's interfering, replacing, controlling? Um, So there's some kind of introductory words there that it's difficult for us to view this set of questions objectively, to think actually government should be a good thing. Government does have a proper role we shouldn't have a default position of viewing it with suspicion. And yet that is part of our American identity. So we need to try and in some sense step away from the American and be we could say properly Catholic if we're going to remember our natural law perspective properly human that the properly human person understands government, the properly human person understands marriage and so forth. Comments thus far? You know I love America, even though I speak to you with a British accent. Okay, page two. Uh, So here there are a string of different quotes, largely from the Catechism. Um, Some of these are also from the Compendium of of the Catholic Church's social teaching. Um, So I guess you had a lot of talk last year or two years ago in the social teaching course on the common good. And the common good is this thing that, you know, we can kind of recognize it as a concept that there is not just the good of individuals, which is part of the common good, the individuals flourishing, but somehow there's a group flourishing that is the common good. And that we as individuals can't flourish without being at some level part of some community, some common thing. So you can't foster the individual's good without also aiming to foster the common good. And whose duty is it? Who has the identity that matches the common good? This is the role of the state, the role of the government. So scanning down in the section responsibility for the common good, I have um, a line from the Compendium of Social Doctrine that I put in bold. The common good is the reason that the political authority exists. Why is there government for the common good? When government exists for some reason that isn't the common good, it's no longer really government. It's some kind of beginning of tyranny. And it's always the case that every bit of human history, government overstretching its limits um, and serving some politician rather than serving the common good. But what's the measure of government, of good government, of the purpose of government? The flourishing of the common good. And you need to have a body to protect, to focus, on the common good, and that's what government is for, the role of the state. Uh, As you read that, any comments or observations or thoughts to throw out at this stage of that? Top of page three, Um, subsidiarity and the question of the family. So if it's the role of the government to promote the common good, if you can't promote the individual's good without promoting the common good, it's also necessary that the functioning of government recognises this principle of subsidiarity so that you undermine the common good by having too much government interference that we as individuals are made with personal initiative, personal thinking, too much external government interference undermines the common good. That's one of the things the principle of subsidiarity is about, that it should only be a level of assistance needed at each low level And if it's possible to have that at a low level, like the family, or the town, or the village, or the church, as in the local parish, then the federal government shouldn't be stepping in. Subsidiarity, you want it, if possible, to be at the lowest level possible, because that's where kind of the people directly are. The lowest level, The primary unit of society is the family. So who is the primary unit to serve the common good of your little community, the family, serving the children, the family? We'll touch on this again next week when we look at uh, same-sex attraction and some of the issues there, but the redefining of marriage and the redefining of family is probably one of the most sinister parts of the shift that happened politically at the end of the 20th century. So I can remember in England the then Prime Minister Tony Blair shifting the whole kind of political da- dynamic of family values and suddenly saying, he was in favor of family values, all families, redefining a family as any unit where there was an adult and a child. And suddenly family becomes a kind of empty word. Um, but that's, I don't know your generation, is that even what you grow up as, the default when you hear the word family? You are still thinking man and woman and children?
1: I read yeah. all, so. <laughs> <laughs> Modern family, that was a show that just had all kinds of different interesting family types. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's this other line in a similar trajectory in a lot of soap operas like Friends and so forth, where family also gets defined as um, any group of friends, that your friends, that's real family, that's the family you choose yourself. And I think there's also something sinister in that, rather than celebrating friendship as a thing in itself, to somehow twist that into calling that family, And part of the reason for a younger generation, so much of that so frequently makes sense is with so many dysfunctional families and broken families, there's a yearning for some kind of family. Well, if I didn't get it growing up, well, my friends can be that. And it's not the same thing. Um, So where's all this going? Society, It needs, among the things it needs, a future, it needs children, it needs a place where children can be raised. Um, That's what family is about. So how is government as the institution that exists to promote the common good going to do that? Primarily through enacting laws. So how does that happen? So onto page four of my notes. And on page four, there, I start asking the question, what is the basis of a civil law? And I give three rival answers at the top there. First, consensus. Uh, so, this is, you know, if you ask different people, well, what is a law? What's a law based on? Some people would say, well, it's consensus. It's kind of what most people think. So, law reflects what society agrees to. Another model, we could say the Marxist model. Um, is that law is based on power, that law is the assertion of one group's power over those without power. Though probably in American and British kind of uh, legal traditions, contract is the most common notion of what is the basis of civil law. That law is nothing more than a group contract by society. We express that group contract by our participation in elections, our elected officials enacting in due process. It's a group contract. Um, And I can remember with a a young lawyer who's very recently got out of law school, having this discussion as a priest. um, You know, what is the basis of law? And he thought he was being really fancy and intelligent and saying well everyone knows it's it's based on contracts that's what law is, a group contract and I then asked him the questions I put here um, well what then is an unjust law because everybody realises everybody would say that law's wrong, that law's unjust well what do you mean to call a law unjust if it's just a group contract then it can't be unjust, it's just a contract there must be some higher measure that is actually the real thing a law is about. So, say, none of the above manages to indicate, articulate the purpose of law with respect to Aquinas' notion of reason and the common good that we're going to unpack. Say, also, none of the above offers a basis to judge a law as an unjust law. So, to repeat what I said any conversation you're going to have with someone, everyone has this notion that some laws are wrong, some laws are unjust. Well, what's your basis for saying that? Because everybody has that somehow in their mental apparatus. What's your basis for saying that? Well, I next list a definition of law from St. Thomas Aquinas, which if you look in the catechism, um, is one of those bits of the catechism where it gets very technical and gets a very lengthy section from St. Thomas that it just pulls directly out. So he defines a law as an ordinance, i.e. a decree issued by an authority of reason for the common good made by those who have care for the community and promulgated. it. Unless if any one of these elements is lacking, the law is not a law, that's what a definition means. So the next couple of pages I'm gonna unpack those various elements there. So first, right reason. It's an ordinance of reason. So A, civil law must be an ordinance of right reason, i.e. must be based on the natural law. As St. Thomas would argue it, what is law? Law is a subsection of reason, that reason directs human acts to their end. And law directs human acts to their end with the addition of a binding command. Do this. Um, So thus, a law contrary to reason is ipso facto not a true law. Then quote the natural law philosopher Russell Hissinger. Have any of you guys heard of him? I mean, he'd be an older generation now, but a very big figure Um, in natural law, natural law, civil law, jurisprudence questions. So he says, human laws determine that you left indeterminate by natural law. For example, natural law says theft is sinful. Positive law establishes how thieves are to be punished. Yeah, so that the positive law is making specific something that already exists in the kind of general natural law. What are you smiling Your second example. But, what's the second example? Driving. Oh, okay, the, is that a footnote? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I took that out of the main body of text, right. Okay, so natural law says that some regulation of traffic is needed. Positive law determines that we should drive on. <laughs> You've got to determine it one side of the road. Yeah. We it <laughs> <laughs> the right All the cars would be hitting each other if there wasn't a decision, and that's an example where it's in a sense utterly random. Do you go with the left? Do you go with the right? Um, So in England, we say that the French drive on the wrong side of the road, but we don't say they're contrary to the natural law. For that reason. You get the basic point though, that there's all these things that are real at the natural level, in the natural law, but you also need them in a particular place to be made more specific in order to get somehow a realization in a local community. So a local community will have some laws that relate to theft. Theft is this general thing in the natural law, it's real, you don't choose whether it's right or wrong, it just is. But how do you define property? How do you define ownership? How do you define how severe punishment for theft is gonna be and so forth? There are all kinds of particulars that are made determinate by a local authority. And that's the job of the local authority. Okay, so I say, note, the authority of a specific positive law thus derives from, one, its connection to the natural law, and two, its determination by a valid authority. So that's kind of our first category within this definition, it's got to be based on right reason. B, page five, Um, the need for authority and for civil laws. Um, And again, I'm kind of pushing this point because it's not an inherent part of our American libertarian culture, so we need to think it through explicitly. So, Roman numeral one, revelation and obedience to civil authority. Michael, could you read that quote from Romans 13?
1: Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will encourage them.
0: And Christopher, the next line. I didn't change the spelling there, I'll get around to that. Um, So, would it be right to observe as Americans we feel a little uncomfortable when we read these lines? That they're not part of our default thinking. Um, And if we bear in mind, these were written, these epistles, uh, when the empire was very hostile to the faith, and even in that context, Fear God and honor the empire. So Revelation says this, as in the Bible. To reason says this. A twofold need for authority and civil laws lies in our nature. First, man's nature is a social being that coordination requires an authority and laws to coordinate. So let me dwell on that point for a second. Where are you going to put a road in the state of Ohio? So this isn't a matter of right or wrong or sin or whatever. Just the state of Ohio needs roads. Where is it going to go? You've got all of these, at one level, disconnected individuals. Somebody has to coordinate that social interaction by determining this is where the road's going to go, which will cut up some trees, interfere with some rivers, but benefit trade and so forth. Our nature as social means coordination, means there's a need for government. Two, though man's nature has fallen, the effects of original sin incline men to sin, and one of the reasons we have laws, therefore positive laws are a threat of punishment for breaking the natural law, for example, theft and murder. So this is also in what we are as fallen human beings, we need government. So I say obedience to civil laws is thus a matter of divine revelation and natural law. I say examples of such morally obligatory obedience include tax laws, for example, honesty in completing tax forms, and traffic laws, for example, speed limits. And then I quote that Pope, um, the constant duty to drive carefully with a sense of responsibility. Um, and I note such obedience is a matter of sin, not merely a matter of fear in getting caught. Now I was just talking with the introduction to Morality Course uh, guys, about the mind of the legislator. So when the legislator says that on the interstates in Ohio the speed limit is 70, what is the mind of the legislator? Is the mind of the legislator that you are going to be punished if you go 72? If you go 75? That the mind of the legislator builds in a certain amount of wiggle room. So it's not the letter of the law that's the thing you're making reference to but the intention of the legislator Um, so i would say if if 80 is kind of the real limit of the wiggle room on most of the interstates in ohio then you would be morally okay driving at 80 assuming you're not dangerously sleepy and on a very bendy road and whatever else um, but if you say well it's just up to me that I think it is the role of the government to determine speed limits among other things public safety is part of the common good but there hasn't been the, the 80 figure right. that'd be a good counterpoint yeah um, so, I'm speculating on how I'm me- reading the mind of the legislator. Though I think it's commonly said that police don't pull you over for less than 80.
1: So, if a new governor, you know, is a speedy, you can go 8590, <laughs> where if it's oh, very you know, cost-driven. Oh, you know, 71 is ooh, you're pushing
0: it. Uh, as a matter of policy, not whether the governor himself does it. Uh, mm, well, uh, executive power, not which is another factor in there as well yeah uh, in terms of enforcing it so really the mind of the legislature would be what was intended by that whole group of the Senate the House of Representatives and the governor that didn't veto it um, My basic point is there's a a legitimate wiggle room that should be what was the mind of the legislator. Um, But it's not a wiggle room that means, well, it's just whatever you think. And if the police aren't patrolling the streets, then it's up to me. Moving on, C, civil law must be ordered to the common good. So this is really where this is gonna relate us to marriage. Civil authority and its laws exist to serve the common good of a society, as we quoted earlier. As I quoted earlier also, um, the political authority has a duty to honor the family, to assist it, and to ensure various things. Um, Quoting all from the Catechism. And we're gonna unpack those in the next pages. And then D, every law must be promulgated. So law does not just indicate right and wrong, rather law actually commands. As I quote another um, moral theologian there, God does not merely point and observe it's wrong to steal, rather he commands thou shalt not steal. So if a law hasn't been promulgated, if a law hasn't been through the proper channels, It's not a law, it's just government advice, the governor's advice, or or something. Um, So all of these elements have to hold together for a law to be a law. So, page six, some cases where this can all start to go wrong, unjust laws. And I'm not yet on this page looking at marriage, but that's obviously where we're going to be heading. So a civil law is only a true law in as much as it conforms to reason, i.e., to the natural moral law. An unjust law is, quoting the Catechism, which quotes St. Thomas, not a law but an act of violence. According to St. Thomas, a human ordinance can be unjust for multiple different reasons. First, those that oppose human good. Uh, So laws ordained ex fine, ordained to a private good, not the common good. For example, civil laws ordered to private goods, for example, to protect the rich, or to protect special interest groups like trade unions, in such a way as to not be ordered to the common good, are thus abuses of the purpose of authority. So in England, our new government uh, introduced a policy that the upper tax threshold of 45% would be abolished and the rich would be taxed at the same level as the poor. Is that a law serving the rich or is it serving the common good? The question is whether that, the claim is by changing that tax you somehow will ultimately benefit everybody and everybody becomes richer when the rich become richer. Um, if that is true, then that serves the common good. If it's not, it's just the law protecting the rich. Conversely, trade union groups. So there have been in the last half, last century, um, most would say places where trade unions became so powerful that they overwhelm the rest of society and just protected their members. Um, so a law that overly protects a particular group like trade unions in a way that doesn't help the rest of society isn't about the common good. But if we don't allow workers to defend themselves by having some form of association in what are called trade unions, to not have that at all would in a different way hinder the common good. So protecting special groups sometimes serves wider society, but only if kind of the purpose of protecting the special group is how it affects everybody else. That has to be the ultimate measure of it being a valid law. Um, Ex autore, so laws enacted by one who usurps authority, or laws that unjustly distribute benefits and burdens, which might come back to the tax brackets thing. So in each of the above three scenarios, the ordinance does not bind, because it does not match the definition of law. Second, it opposes the divine good. So ordinances commanding things directly contrary to the divine law are unjust. Some examples. If an emperor passes a law requiring sacrifice to idols, then the law does not bind on your conscience because it's an unjust law on grounds of opposing the divine good. And these were the laws in ancient pagan Rome. So fear God and honour the emperor, but don't honour the emperor by doing a law contrary to the divine good. Second example. If a king and his parliament pass a law changing the number of the sacraments and forbidding the celebration of what had previously been called sacraments, then the law does not bind. It's an unjust law on the grounds of the divine positive law concerning the seven sacraments. I say this was a law in England after the Protestant king Edward VI. Third example, Covid era. Government COVID regulations on the celebration of the sacraments, I say, have seriously risked exceeding the state's just authority. I say good examples have seen bishops legislating after consulting with the state, but it's the bishops who have legislated. Um, And I say as an example of history, the great St. Charles Borromeo, Bishop of Milan, closed all his churches for two years to fight a plague. But a plague that had a significantly higher death rate than COVID. Um, But the notion in theory of the government deciding to close the churches is deeply problematic. Um, So a law is unjust if it opposes the human good or opposes the divine good. Bottom of the page there, I give two contemporary test cases. First, laws requiring Catholic adoption agencies to place children in same-sex couples. Um, So if same-sex couples are just like other couples, if same-sex couples have the same desire to adopt children as other couples, um, then increasingly our states say an adoption agency must give all couples the same access to children, which in England has meant pretty much all of our adoption agents, diocesan adoption agencies have closed rather than go along with state laws on this. Um, A big example here in the States, laws requiring Catholic judges or justices of the peace to officiate at same-sex unions. So, you are a justice of the peace. Um, You have to do state marriages. A couple come to you that are a same sex couple. Do you have the legal right to turn them away? Um, I didn't footnote who is the. So, there's a really famous woman, justice of the peace, of this just a few years ago, wasn't it? Anyone remember her name? No. So so increasingly we're gonna be in a situation where you can't be a Catholic and a justice of the peace. Because that would be an example of something that is contrary to the natural order, the natural law, and you can't act as if it wasn't by um, taking the role of the justice of the peace in that case.
1: Can you, as a Catholic, justice of the peace officiate a, a wedding, or...?
0: Yes, because it could be a, a natural union between two non-Catholics. Yeah, so what you're thinking is that a Catholic can't marry outside the church. Yeah. But but, but a justice of the peace wouldn't, if it's among non-Catholics, then it's canonical form for them, because they're not Catholic.
1: About cases of, even if people outside the church are getting married again, like divorce and remarriage.
0: That is, yeah, that then is really problematic. Um, Well, certainly, as an, I think an ordained minister, a deacon or a priest, would, just couldn't take that role right. cause, because of the confusion of, of whether a lay Catholic can appear to just be not functioning as a Catholic in that sense. I'll be honest, I haven't thought of that scenario in great depth. I think there'd be some things that wouldn't be contrary to the natural law and therefore could be done.
1: But it's one that you probably shouldn't do as a Catholic, A job you probably shouldn't have as a Catholic even before the same-sex marriage became a thing. If you have divorced and remarried, you have no idea who's coming up to get married. Yeah. Just with the how commonplace divorce is and
0: yeah, I think it as as a non
1: practicing Catholic and somebody like there's I think just probably something you shouldn't do anyway. You can ask once in yeah. <laughs> Well he's
0: gonna give a canonical answer. Um My hesitation is I'm not wanting to give a line harder than the church is actually giving. Um it's certainly a position a Catholic doing that's gonna feel morally compromised on a regular basis how's that going to affect the living of their faith Um, but there would be many justice of the peace scenarios that would be utterly fine Uh, that two non-Catholics getting a naturally proper natural level marriage feel happy to ask Father Johnson. Okay, page seven. This is one of the pages I asked you to read in advance. So, recognition of homosexual unions as civil partnerships. So this was before the question of um, same-sex marriage came up. There was this other question, well, let's allow them to have civil partnerships, but we won't call it marriage. Um, And so the footnote there indicates where this is all from, the CDF issue 2003, considerations regarding proposals to give legal recognitions to unions between homosexual persons. And the key argument there, uh, Daniel, could you read from because, and just that section?
1: Because married couples ensure the succession of generations and are therefore eminently within the public interest, civil law grants them institutional recognition, and essentially unions, on the other hand, do not need specific attention from the legal point, since they do not exercise this function for the common good. Or is the argument valid according to which legal recognition of homosexual unions is necessary to avoid situations in which cohabiting homosexual persons, simply because they live together, might be deprived of real recognition of their rights as persons and citizens? In reality, they can always make use of the provisions of law, like all citizens from the standpoint of their private autonomy, protect their rights in matters of common interest. It would be greatly unjust to sacrifice the common good and just laws in the family in order to protect personal goods that can and must be guaranteed in
0: ways that do not harm the law of society. Okay, I want us to pause for a minute with this example to be clear we've all understood what's being articulated here. So... Why are certain benefits given to married couples? Because those married couples are serving society, are serving future generations. So if you give those same benefits to a couple, a same-sex couple, or to friends that just are very committed to each other as friends, you're then, by benefiting everybody, you're ceasing to actually benefit the married couple. You're ceasing to promote the successive generations um, by that mechanism. Comment on the argument there or the issue at stake? So, conversely, it's often said well um, you know when Bob and George um, they've the same sex couple they've been living together all their lives and then one of them dies and the ownership of their property if they're not in legal marriage how does that get passed on to the other person well they're not Married, it's not the same thing that we benefit a married husband and wife because of how they are serving society. Two friends who might spend their whole life together, live in a house together, don't deserve the same protection in law. If society wants to give friends some of those benefits of house ownership, that can be done in itself in terms of joint ownership of property without needing to make them have the same status as marriage. So property rights, um, the transfer of property on death, these are among, I think the most, one of the arguments that's thrown up in this kind of scenario of, of giving fair treatment to people with same-sex attraction and and same-sex unions but there are other ways of handling that. Could you just run into your will? I mean, can't the married
1: couple choose to not pass along their positions to the
0: spouse? I think the issue is inheritance tax which a married couple have certain provisions that friends together don't have.
1: But it's tax so it's that so it's...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you for clarifying everything for that, yes, yes. We see the issue here. So on one hand it seems to be fair to just let all these different couples have the same benefits, but that actually ends up undermining traditional marriage, undermining the family. How do we promote children, promote future society, by having a place for children, by giving a status, tax breaks, whatever else, to traditional marriage. Over the page, so again I asked you to read this page in advance, a slightly different permutation of this. Um, When a government gives couples that might be heterosexual couples or whatever but they're not married to each other they've not committed themselves to each other in marriage but they might live together for 30 years should they have the same legal protections as a married couple. And so as the document There, that's quoted that came out from the Pontifical Council for the Family on de facto unions in 2000 notes that by not getting married the de facto union couple are not serving society so therefore society shouldn't serve them back as if they were in that commitment because if you give again if you if everybody has the same benefit, then nobody gets a benefit. Uh, you don't promote the family. Um, are you familiar with this as a category? These things called de facto unions.
1: Mm. Isn't it like if a couple lives together for X number of years, then they like it becomes as if they were married because of the amount of time they've been together, something like. That.
0: And I don't know Ohio law how that treats them, but there are some places where they end up having the same rights in law as if they were married. Um, And so the, the document there is saying that is implicitly undermining marriage by doing that and is going to be an increasing trend in a society where people are choosing not to get married and just live together, but then politically, well, we're going to give them the same benefits. Um,
1: what about a, a monastery or something?
0: <laughs> what about they, it? I mean, They're
1: technically all in the same building together, so is that a de facto union? <laughs> is that
0: a aside it's a completely different thing is is the is that it's not claiming to be like a marriage it's claiming to be something else so there you're needing to look at the arguments about why it serves the common good to give religious institutions certain benefits um, and so we would want to have a hindu place get certain tax breaks because religion benefits society Um, that's a slightly different argument but um, religion benefits society is i think you can argue that from a natural law perspective i'm not going to go through uh, so october 2020 was the year i first taught this course you can see i got into quite a convoluted state trying to explain this documentary by, by, about featuring Pope Francis, yet another public relations disaster um, that had a, at the end there you can see the Secretariat of State from the Vatican issued a clarifying statement, but where, you know, just the, the public media, loving Pope Francis, but loving to misquote him uh, and loving to quote him in a way that serves their agenda and not really caring what his agenda is okay page nine how are we doing time wise ten minutes so this will be our last page Where do? what's our responsibility before unjust laws so three principles authority does not derive its moral legitimacy from itself that blind obedience doesn't suffice to excuse but disobedience can sometimes cause circumstantial evils that imply obedience is preferable. So then quote, and I'm footnoting there, John the 23rd and the Catechism, unjust laws do not bind the conscience. So when your conscience is bound, it's a matter of sin. A just law from a just government, I am bound to obey it as a matter of sin. An unjust law, does not bind as a matter of sin. There might be some other sense in which it binds though. See, citizens are obliged in conscience to refuse obedience to unjust laws, but citizens should continue to serve the common good in other matters and to obey the civil authorities in other matters. So to say, well, this Biden administration is unjust, therefore, I don't need to obey the government, therefore I can run that red light. Um, There's a whole fabric of society and law that I, generally speaking, am still required to obey, um, even when some laws, significant laws, are unjust. But an unjust law, when should I obey an unjust law? So St. Thomas Aquinas, who I'm footnoting and quoting here, he says, Obey it to avoid scandal, to avoid civic disturbance, to avoid inflicting a more grievous hurt. For which cause a man should even yield his right? According to Matthew 5:40. if a man take away your coat, give him your cloak also. I say, but in any of the cases St. Thomas lists above, the unjust law per se does not bind the conscience. If the law binds, it binds per accidents due to the effects of one's disobedience of the law. So what would be scandal or disturbance? So for example, if one's disobedience would cause the public to lose confidence in what is otherwise a generally just legal system. So to just pause there a second, if you think how many times a protest against the government turns into a riot and turns into the damage of innocent civilians, private property in their shops and their storefronts and so forth. There's a form of disobedience to a law, even when it's an unjust law, that can undermine the common good. And this is what St. Thomas is pointing to. For you to decide you're going to disobey this law, even though the law itself is wrong, is unjust, is your disobedience going to actually do more damage to the common good than your obedience to the unjust law and the unjust law is opposing the common good? So that's a circumstantial assessment a particular, It's going to vary in each circumstance, with each law. Um,
1: that seems like it's really hard to judge, too. Yeah. Because there's a lot of cases where even if it does cause scandal and destruction of property, eventually you can change the law. Like Gandhi in India, like the Civil Rights Movement. There was a lot of chaos, but then it changed the law. So was that something that they... Shouldn't have done that? Should you obey the unjust law? To avoid causing that scandal or just causing that scandal and changing the law? Was that the right way to handle
0: it? Well, I think the two examples you give there would be examples where, generally speaking, the manner of uh, non-compliance with the unjust law wasn't violent and therefore was an appropriate form of civil resistance. And those would be among the factors, but I think you'd also be right to point out a certain amount of civil disturbance um, may be necessary for an ultimate good. Um, Okay, I say, however, laws contrary to the divine law, including the 10 commandments, must, St. Thomas says, in no wise be observed. So Elizabethan laws requiring an oath against the sovereignty of the Pope, or Nazi laws requiring the genocide of the Jews, you just can't go along with these in any circumstance. Over the page. Five minutes left. Um, the Christian in civil society. So, I say the lay sphere has a rightful autonomy from religious authorities. So, Nancy Pelosi is utterly correct to say a bishop does not have the right to tell her what to do. She is a lay politician. But, the lay sphere does not have a rightful authority autonomy from morality. So if something is being pointed to that she's doing that is a matter of sin, the bishop does have a duty to be pointing to that. So she doesn't need to obey the bishop as bishop, but she needs to obey the moral law as the moral law. And if that's what the bishop's pointing to, that's his role. So a lay Catholic must act in accord with the natural law, not in accord with the norms of popular culture. A lay Catholic must legislate in accord with the natural law, with right reason, not in accord with popular opinion, even that of his constituents. In quoting from the CDF, the rightful autonomy of the political or civil sphere from that of religion and the church, but not from that of morality, is a value that has been attained and recognized by the Catholic Church and belongs to the inheritance of contemporary civilization. So when should you have a revolution against unjust laws? Uh, David, could you read that quote from the Catechism Armed Resistance?
1: Armed resistance to oppression by political authority is not legitimate unless all the following conditions are met. There is certain grave and prolonged violation of fundamental rights Two, all other means of redress have been exhausted. Three, such resistance will not provoke worse disorders. Four, there is well-founded hope of success. And five, it is impossible reasonably to foresee any better solution.
0: And I know those parallel the conditions of a just war. So there are conditions for a just revolution against the government to say this is the point where Biden has crossed the line. Um, but there are serious grounds. Tyrannicide at the bottom of the page there, St. Thomas notes, Tyranny is an act of violence, a kind of criminality. Say, for example, the ungodly rule of Queen Elizabeth I. Tyrants, St. Thomas says, may be killed by anyone with the effective power to do so if you can envisage a peaceful transfer of power. So you've got some other government in the wings ready, you assassinate the tyrant um, to bring that replacement. If you don't have the alternative in place, then you end up with what I think we can say happened in the Iraq War, you got rid of Saddam Hussein, but there was no alternative ready, and so you end up with a worse attack on the common good than he was doing, even though he was doing a great evil to the common good. So there comes a stage where the civil law, the government is opposing the common good to such an extent that you need to even use violence against it. More likely in our lifetime in this country, dramatic but democratic means of opposing refusing to cooperate with um, the will of the civil authority the next two lectures we have are on homosexuality we won't need all of those if you bring this bundle of notes then the last page 11 um, We'll hopefully go through I I asked you to read that page already but just have a chance to comment on that directly then okay well in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end amen in the father to the son and to the holy spirit amen